And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And then the passage from Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 25. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Betsy. Uh, Well, good evening. It is great to be back with you guys. And for those of you who are new joining us for the first time, a warm welcome to you. We just started a series in the Ten Commandments. Uh, Last week was our first week, and we provided the framing of the Ten Commandments because that's what God does in the beginning of Exodus 20. And I don't normally say this, but if you weren't here last week, I'd strongly encourage you to listen to the message because so many of the areas we go awry in our life come from a misunderstanding of God's law and how we relate to it. And I really do hope it was as refreshing for you as it was for me to see how we view God's law, because um, if you grew up in the church, I don't know if you're like me in the sense of, so I was raised in a Christian home, which was great for many reasons, but how I often viewed the law was, it was kind of like this unfortunate thing that I had to deal with as just being a follower of Jesus, kind of like taxes are an unfortunate thing you have to deal with, you know, if you're in a government But as we saw last week, the law of God, it's never the way that we're brought into the kingdom of Jesus. But once you're brought in by grace uh, through Jesus, the law is the very means by which we enjoy God and love other people and walk in the path of life. And we'll look at this a little bit at the start of most of these sermons just because we so often miss this. And the reason this is the case is because that's how laws work. So, Laws are fixed realities about the world such that you can disobey them or violate them to your suffering, or you can obey them to your prospering. So think about the laws of physics. You can, you can decide, I want to go to Oregon, and you climb up on a high place somewhere and jump off because you want to fly like Superman to Oregon. That is not going to end well for you. Why? Because you're not honoring the law of physics. However, when you cultivate the laws of physics, you can do amazing things. You can sit in a metal tube with wings on it and get to Oregon in just a few hours. It used to take like six months and half your company would die on the Oregon Trail, right? So you you can do wonderful things when you honor the laws of reality. And this is how the law of God works. Because the law is an expression of his character, And because the law is an expression of how he's woven reality, um, it's how our our relationships and our emotional life and our spiritual life is structured such that when we, we we can find out new things about God's law and obey God's law in new ways, and we will flourish. Or we can choose to disregard the law of God, and we'll disintegrate, our relationships will disintegrate. And so as we look here at the first commandment or the first law, The bold claim of the Bible and the bold claim of Jesus is you can trace everything wrong with the human condition 
down to the violation of this first law. Like, if we violate this law, and the human condition is a complex phenomenon, but we can truly get to the root of everything that's wrong within ourselves and relationally when we look at the fact that every single human being violates this law. And so this is really important. There's a reason why uh, God put it first. And so we'll ask these three questions of the first commandment, no other gods, otherwise known as idolatry. So first, what's the essence of idolatry? Second, why is idolatry so dangerous? Why is it a big deal? And then number three, since it is so dangerous, what is the solution for it? So first, what's its essence? What's the essence of idolatry? Number two, why is it so dangerous? And then number three, what's the solution for it? Okay, so first let's look at what idolatry actually is. And here we look at where Paul expands on this first commandment in Romans 1. We'll often pair a New Testament passage with the, with the law so we can get a little bit more clarity on what it means. So look at Romans 1, uh, beginning in verse 22. This is talking about everybody before we meet Christ. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and here's the key word, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And then he reemphasizes that point again in verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And that's the key. That's the essence of idolatry. So what idolatry is, is it's an exchange. It's exchanging the creator God for anything created or anything derivative. There's only one entity in the creator category. That's God. So anything else is a created derivative thing, and it's exchanging the true God for anything created. Or put another way, it's exalting anything created or derivative and asking it to give you happiness and significance and security in the way that only God can do. So that's what it is. So now we have to ask, why does God make this the first commandment? And there's at least two very clear reasons. And the first is, you can see at at the beginning of the Ten Commandments, he says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So the Israelites just spent 400 years as slaves in Egypt, and they were immersed in a polytheistic environment. So everybody around them was bowing down to various deities. So they had a god of fertility that they would bow to for healthy children. They had a a god of the harvest that they would bow, bow down to, you know, to have a good harvest and have good and healthy crops and so forth. And so God knows that this, since this is the environment that they've been swimming in, it's going to feel very natural for the Israelites to want to worship derivative or creative deities. Kind of like, you know, if you grew up in a, a family that has a particular Christmas tradition, when you're in it for so long, you just assume, like, this is how one celebrates Christmas. And then you realize it's different if you get married to someone who had a different Christmas tradition, and then you get in really intense arguments about what's the right way to do Christmas, right? So that's what's going on here for the Israelites. It would feel very natural to look to other things to control their environment. And as we think about this, we think about, oh, man, people would bow down to carved images to try to control their environment and give them significance. How, how primitive, And, you know, I think that the Egyptians and many other nations are simply just more honest about what they're doing. Because we may not name a god Osiris, but we call it stock market or 401k. We don't bow down to a physical temple named Aphrodite, but we do look to sex and relationships, right, to give us 
satisfaction, significance, and so forth. And so one of the keys to know about idolatry is it doesn't matter how non-religious of a person you are, and it doesn't matter how well you know Jesus. Everybody is a worshiper, and everyone, myself included, in our natural state, and even after we start following Jesus, it is our natural bent to want to exchange the glory of the immortal God, as we read in Romans 1, for something created. And when I say created, don't just think like physical entities. This can be career success. This can be financial security. This can be some kind of relationship. Okay, so that's the first reason why God makes us number one, because it's going to be our natural bent. But number two, the reason why he makes it the first commandment is notice the second commandment in verse four. This is a corollary to the first commandment. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath. Sorry, that's actually for a future point. Let's back up for a second. <laughs> we'll get to there in a minute. The, the second reason why God makes this the first commandment is because you can't violate the rest of the commandments without first violating this one, the first one. It, it really is the sin under every sin. So you can't violate commandment nine, thou shalt not lie, if you first don't right, look to a created thing, a human, and desire their approval more than the approval of God. So you lie. Right, you can't violate the tenth, the tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet, without exchanging God for some derivative thing to look to it for, you know, meaning or significance or security. It really, like, it, it's so key. And so, you know, sometimes I've read critiques or talked with people who aren't Christians, and, and they'll say something, it's a reasonable question to the effect of, why did the, you know, infinite, all-wise God make the first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods? That just seems kind of silly, you know, why not make the first commandment, thou shalt not commit genocide, or thou shalt not rape? Like, doesn't that sound more sensible? And, I mean, just to take a, a very obvious example, Nazi Germany could not have happened if they didn't first violate the first commandment, if they didn't have a leader who was violating it all over the place, right? So he couldn't have violated the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder, among many others, if he didn't first exchange the true God for uh, the created God of nationalism, of control, of trying to cover his own fragile sense of identity. And so since it's the sin under every sin, this is why God puts it first. So that's what idolatry is, right? Exchanging God for something created. It's, it's really, it's a big deal. So next number two, why is it so dangerous? And uh, we've already kind of touched on it, right, because out of it flows everything else, but let's dig deeper now with why is idolatry so dangerous. And I initially had a, a Google Doc of like 20 reasons. I boiled it down to two, so you're welcome. <laughs> All right, so two reasons why idolatry is so dangerous. So let's go back to Romans 1, where Paul's talking about this. And look at verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. And then here's the key. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So one reason why idolatry is so dangerous is because it distorts your thinking. You can't exchange God for something created and look to it as a deity without some kind of intense twist of your thinking to take place. So just as a quick example, say you were 
out somewhere and you saw one of the parents in this church and they didn't know you're around but you see them and they're with one of their children and you see someone kind of a shady looking individual come up to the parent and they offer to give them give the parent a new iphone in exchange for their child and the parent makes the exchange (laughs) right there's something profoundly dark about that right and you know that parent would have to have a lot of things distorted in their thinking to exchange a human being, right, let alone their child, for a piece of machinery. And I mean, on a much more massive scale, that's what we're looking at when we exchange the perfect and beautiful and holy God who's given all of himself for us and exchanged him for something else. And so you can't do that, and we all do it, without, a, like, without our thinking to become distorted. And once you make a created entity your deity, you will rationalize anything in order to keep it. And your whole life will orbit around keeping it. And so just as a couple of examples, um, these are real people, I know. Uh, One is a mom, I know, who so desperately wanted her daughter to have a safe and successful life her idol was her child's happiness, that she smothered her child with overprotectiveness and her fears and anxieties and managing every detail of this child's life to the point where it radically, I can't share the, the whole story, but it, it's, pr- it's pretty sad, um, to where it so alienated her child from her because this mother would not listen to reason when her daughter and other people were saying, hey, you were being way too overprotective and micromanaging in your child's life. Another one, I know, uh, I know different men and women who so value autonomy that they'll date someone and as things get close to the engagement and the person they're with is truly a wonderful match for them. They break up with the person because they just love waking up when they want to wake up. They don't want to have someone else telling them how they should arrange the dishes and what they should be doing with their schedule. They so idolize autonomy that they just end relationship after relationship after relationship. Third one, there's a pastor I know who, uh, he used to pastor in a a city, and and it's it's a pretty well-known city, and in his church there were a lot of famous actresses and investment bankers and uh, university professors and so forth that attended his church. And before he would preach, he would use three different prescription meds. He, he, He got the prescriptions from a doctor and tripled the dose to take before he would preach because his idol was people. Like he could not stand the fact of getting up and preaching and not impressing the congregation that he drove himself crazy with medication. And that's what idolatry does to us. And as you hear these stories, I hope you don't think, oh, well, those are some really unself-controlled people. I would never do that. As soon as we start to think like that, like that's the trajectory that we're going to go in. And so that's why we need community, right? Because by definition, we're blind when we hold to an idol. And as you think about that final example with the pastor overdosing on prescription meds, we just had, you know, Andrew installed as an elder. This is why you want to make sure your leaders don't violate the first commandment and why your leaders don't care more about impressing the people in, in their church more than they submit to and follow the Lord. And so leaders absolutely need help with this as well. So that's the first reason why idolatry is so dangerous because it, it does distort our thinking. We need each other to see our blind spots. 
Second, why is it so dangerous? And it's because an idol really can be anything. Anything. And that's where we were talking about a few minutes ago with the second commandment, right, where God says don't make anything an idol, any image on, under heaven or earth. So sex, money, and power, okay, those are the tried and true ones, almost inevitably one of them or a combination or an idol or people's lives. But to get an idea of the broader scope of this, uh, an idol can be, you can make family an idol. Politics, that's become increasingly clear over the past few years. A lot of people making politics into an idol. You can make hard work into an idol. Autonomy, approval, control. That's not an issue for anyone here living in Arlington, right? <laughs> the idol of control. Anything can be an idol. And so as I was thinking about this week when it comes to our church, so inevitably there's going to be a combination of these things for, for each of us, but I think because an idol can be anything, they're sneaky. And there's an idol I think that all of us bow down to in some way, shape, or form just by definition of where we live and in the time of place that we live in. And it's the idol of good feelings. Okay, so just bear with me a little bit here. The idol of good feelings. And here I'm drawing a little bit from a pastor, an Australian pastor named Mark Sayers, who does a great job putting his finger on this. So in our cultural moment, we have a, an intensely therapeutic, therapeutic, psychological version of what happiness is and what the good life is, such that where we think to ourselves the good life and a successful life is having good feeling after good feeling after good feeling. And if I'm not having like a regular series of good feelings and I'm sad or upset in some way, then something must be wrong. And we look like, well, of course the good life is when you go from good feeling to good feeling. But that's actually, it's a very culturally narrow view of, of the good life and of a successful life. And there's a woman named uh, Anna Lemke who wrote a book that came out last year called Dopamine Nation. And essentially, that's uh, one, of the, one of the main points in the books is that we, since we have all these dopamine dispensers so readily available to us, we just go from dopamine hit to dopamine hit. To, so we, we, go, we get a, a great espresso and pastry dopamine hit, right? We, we present something, you know, to, to, our, to our workplace, and everybody gives us approval, dopamine hit. If they don't give us approval, something's wrong, right? We go on a vacation, dopamine hit. We get home, we post pictures of the vacation and get 30 likes, 30 dopamine hits. And you see what happens when good feelings become your idol. Th think about how this plays out. God now becomes the means to the end of good feelings. So just think about it. So very, so a few simple situations. So your devotional life. Right? Just thinking about spending time in solitude with the Lord, reading his word and praying. How many times, I'm speaking out of experience, how many times do you stop or fall off the wagon because it just feels boring or it's not very stimulating? And so you reach for your phone and you check something on your phone or you, or you go do something else and you see what's happened there? When your one-on-one -on -one time with the Lord isn't giving you a dopamine hit, you think, oh, something must be wrong. And now you're actually using God as a tool or an instrument for a good experience. Or take just what, what's required for basic human relationships, uh, no less so in the church, to thrive. Uh, there have been a number of times where I've talked with folks who, uh, someone in the church, 
wrong them in some way. Not, nothing huge, just, you know, kind of normal human life. They, they said something unthinking and wrong them. And I say, well, you know, you should go talk to that person and reconcile with them. And they say something to the effect of, but that would be uncomfortable. And they don't do it. Now, look, I get that. Um, I didn't realize just how much, I'd, as a pastor, I'd have to have uncomfortable conversations. It's just something I've been forced to walk into. Jeff's laughing, he knows. But, you, like, you're, you're missing out on an opportunity of uh, providing gospel-centered reconciliation for someone or helping someone grow in an area that maybe they don't even realize they're acting in a certain way because if a good feeling isn't going to happen in the middle of the conversation, you don't do it. Right? Or just the basic the basic pattern of the Christian life, right? Jesus does promise us a new earth where we, where we will have good feeling after good feeling, right? Your right hand are pleasures forevermore, Psalm 16 says. But in the meantime, we're in union with a crucified Savior. And he calls us to pick up our cross. And fortunately, we don't have to go to the same cross he did. But our regular pattern of living will not entail good feelings. And so just think about, you may decide, okay, I'm not going to go to community group tonight or discipleship group tonight because I'm tired and it's not going to give me a good feeling or a dopamine hit. Or I don't want to invite someone over to my home on a weeknight because, it, you know, it's just a lot of logistics to work out. And, it's a, and I'm just, I'm, I'm exhausted and it's not going to feel good. So I, like this plays in so many different ways. And so I, I want to challenge us to think about where this often unseen God, right, of good feelings is moving us and shaping us. Okay, so those are just a couple reasons why idols are so dangerous, right? It distorts our thinking, and then it really can be anything. And so number three, let's look at, okay, if, if it's such a big deal, what's the solution? And this, of course, is it's so multifaceted, but here are just a, a few principles that are really helpful to keep in mind. So first, number one, talk to God about it. Doesn't sound revolutionary, maybe, but that's part of precisely the problem, as I was looking at these Ten Commandments again, I, what struck me is I don't think God put down the first commandment, no other gods before me, because he wanted to do it in some kind of domineering way. Yes, God wants us to see the severity of idolatry, but more than that, he wants us to see the intensity of his love. I think he put it first because he knows this is what we're prone to. He knows these are our temptations, and he knows when we break it, we're then going to you know, violate all the rest of the Ten Commandments. And so he tells us that in love. And so one of the greatest lies you can believe is that God is somehow repulsed by your idols, right, or that he's indifferent to them. I just encourage you to actually talk with God about it and say, here's something that I'm holding on to that I think is maybe just way too important to me, and just work it through with God. And as a, as a brief pastoral aside, because I think— um, this is something that I, I think a lot of you are, are thinking about. So I know there's a lot of you in this church who have really good desires. A lot of you have a really strong desire for a spouse. Others of you have really strong desires for something to happen in your career. Others of you for certain relationships in your family. And so I, I think you, hear, you may hear, you may look at this first commandment, and you may think, like, does God not want me to be happy? Or are these longings, like, not okay to have? And that's not true, okay, but what we do need to be mindful of is because anything can be an idol, is just to work through with the Lord and with people in community, just ask questions such as, 
one of the like one of the few questions you can ask to determine is this beca- is this become too important? One is, do you find yourself frequently bitter toward people that have what you don't have, you know, with this particular longing? Or if you were to get it, would God then become a distant memory? There are just a lot of people I've worked with as a pastor. They come to church a lot. They read their Bible. They're involved in group. But their relationships are on the rocks. Their career isn't going well. And then as soon as those things happen, you don't see them again. And then also just ask yourself, you know, if God did, never gave me this thing, there's, you could be sad and you should be in lament. But would it be the end of the world? You know, would you say, okay, well, God, I want nothing more to do with you and just fall into bitterness? There's just some questions that you can work through with the Lord and with others in the community. Okay, so talk to God about it. Number two is unmask the idol for what it is. Okay, unmask the idol. There's this story in Isaiah 44 where he tells a story about a man who cuts down a tree, and he uses half the tree to burn for fire, and then the other, the other half of the tree he uses to, he carves out an idol. And then he bows down before the image and he says, deliver me, oh my God. And it's meant to be kind of humorous because you as the reader, you're thinking, you literally just made it. <laughs> you literally just made it and now you're bowing down before it to ask it to save you. Just pointing out the sheer folly of us looking to anything created to help us, you know, in the way that only God can do. And so it could just be so liberating to look at, you know, whatever that really deep longing you have that, that isn't God, just to unmask it for what it is. Because idols always demand far more than they actually give. And so a, a career, right? A career is a, a career can be a really good thing. But if you bow down before it and say, save me, even if you do succeed by the world's terms, you'll eventually be pushed out or retire, and eventually no one will remember, remember, remember your name. It's going to happen to the best of us. A, a marriage or a child or a child who grows up to follow the Lord is a good thing. But if you turn any one of those people or relationships into an idol— You'll be super bitter until it happens. And then if you get it, you will place a weight or a burden on that person or that child that they are not meant to bear. Your physical appearance, your health, good things. You make it into a God, it's it's a losing game. You will die. <laughs> can, I, can I just say that? It's a losing idols. They always demand and demand and demand and never give. They never follow through on their promises. So just unmask it for what it is. It's so helpful. And then finally, number three, as you think about displacing the false gods in your life, is worship the true king. Worship the true king. God knows that if you, if you tell a foolish person who's distorted in their thinking, which we all are, right, according to Romans 1, stop worshiping idols, because we're fools and because we're blind, we're going to look at that person and say, I'm not a fool. I'm wise. You're the fool. And, you, and idols are so powerful, you can't just say, stop it. And so what I love about how God gives us these commandments is he doesn't just say, stop it. Stop it with the idolatry. Let's go back to verse 2. He says, 
I am the Lord, your God. And what God's communicating here is, yes, he asked for undivided allegiance because it is what's best for you in all of your relationships, but it's not a one-way allegiance. He gives himself back to you and he invites you into a relationship of personal pronouns. That's why he says, I'm your God. Right? So when Titus or Kaladin look at me, they don't just say, you're a dad. You're my dad. You're my father. And when you see God's commitment to you, this is what enables you to much easier push those cheap substitutes aside and to fall down before his face in worship. And as an example of this, in the end of the Fellowship of the Ring, there is a character named Boromir. Some of you are smiling. I haven't used the Lord of the Rings illustration in a little while. And the, the, the Quans just had a watch party for the Lord of the Rings, so thank you. So more of you have read it. And if you haven't, this is really why you have to watch it, because this, really this really is good. Okay, so there's a character named Boromir, and he's a lot like you and me. Okay, mixed bag of virtues and vices, and he is the heir to his city of Gondor. And in comes this other guy, Aragorn, who's the true king, who's the true heir to Gondor. And throughout the movie, you can see Boromir disdains Aragorn, right? He doesn't want to submit to Aragorn as the true king, partially because of his pride, right? He thinks he's the king to the throne, but also just because Aragorn doesn't look that impressive, right? He's a, like, ragtag ranger from the north. He doesn't look that glamorous. And what happens at the end of the film is there's this great battle, and Boromir is pierced with a number of arrows, and he's on his knees, and this, you know, great big orc is about to finish him off with the final arrow. And Aragorn sees this taking place, and so he runs down, and he puts himself between Boromir's death and his enemy, and he kills his enemy, but at this point, it's too late, and so Boromir's lying on the ground, and he's dying, and Aragorn comes over, and he grabs his hand, and you can see as he does it, Boromir's heart softens because what did he see? He said, he saw, if this man was willing to risk his life for me, that is a man I can give my full allegiance to. And you have a king, Jesus Christ, heir of everything in heaven and on earth, who when he saw you exchanging God for all these idols, he ran after you, and he didn't just risk his life. What did he do? He exchanged his life for you. He said, my life for you, my love for, for you. And it was at the cross where he took all the pain and the loneliness and the sin that belongs to you and gives you all the security and righteousness and redemption and intimacy with God that belongs to him. And then he too, he grabs your hand, and as you look at him, you can know as your brother, he understands your longings, he understands your sorrows, he understands your temptations, he understands your fears. As your captain, he always guides you into the path of life, and as your king, he loves you enough to pry your fingers off those cheap substitutes that you, you hold on to as God and replace them with his own hands. Jesus satisfies 
everything you long for because he is the thing you long for. And when you see that anew, you too can say, not I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king, like Boromir said, but you can say, I will follow you, then with personal pronouns, my brother, my captain, and my king. Let's pray.